Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Tempting Fate. It's a guest essay by Barbara Pitkin, Ph.D., Senior Lecturer in Religious Studies at Stanford University. Barbara is a member of Grace Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. The title of her essay is called Tempting Fate for the First Sunday in Lent, based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 13th, 2011. Two tales of temptation, each a prelude to a much larger drama. On the one hand, the first woman and man, yielding to the serpent's lie in the garden. On the other, Jesus in the wilderness, resisting three times the devil's propositions. Disobedience versus obedience, each a catalyst within their respective narratives. Out of the garden utopia and into the mess of human history. Out of the wilderness and into the world. Together, they raise up themes of disobedience, guilt, shame, brokenness, betrayal, denial, and suffering for pondering on this first Sunday of the Lenten journey. Yet, for Christians, these stories traditionally offer more than mere object lessons. In Paul's epistle for this week, from Romans chapter 5, the two are related as type and antitype, and their protagonists have significance far beyond promoting restraint in the face of trial. Thinking of Jesus' ultimate resistance of temptation in his submission to death, Paul concludes in Romans 5:18 and 19, Just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of obedience leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul clips and splices, integrating the two tales into a unified narrative of human fall and redemption. The fate of one in the face of temptation held up as the fate of all. In Paul's harmonizing and universalizing, however, much material ends up on the cutting room floor. Most conspicuously absent, of course, is the woman. Arguably the central character in the Genesis account, her participation is eclipsed in Paul's recasting of the incident in Romans. The man is the sole source of condemnation, sin, and death. Jesus, the source of life. Quite the ironic twist in light of both her leading role in the transgression of the divine command and the meaning of her name, Eve, source of all life, Genesis 3.20. Not that Eve would necessarily mind the oversight, Paul's expunging of any reference to her might be preferable to her fate in some other Christian retellings of the Genesis tale. Ignoring Adam's culpability, the author of 2 Timothy 2.14 declares, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Other early writers divide the blame more equally, but speculate that the serpent approached Eve and that she yielded because as woman she was more gullible, less rational, morally weaker, or more prone to wrongdoing. For some, she compounds her error by knowingly drawing her male companion into the crime. 
whereas he yields only because of his affection for her. In the early modern and modern periods, artistic representations of the scene, such as Michelangelo's fall and expulsion of Adam and Eve, 1510, and William Blake's Temptation of Eve, 1808, make subtle yet unmistakable visual connections between Eve and the serpent. Following that trajectory, popular understandings frequently cast Eve in the role of temptress herself. In recent years, feminist engagement with the story of temptation in the garden has questioned whether these traditional explanations do justice to the Genesis narrative. Phyllis Tribble, Mika Ball, and Ilana Pardes, for example, resist the pull of earlier interpretive trajectories in order to uncover new views of Eve and her role in the story. Though they by no means exonerate the narrative completely, and disagree over the whether and if so when the text provides the seeds for the sexist readings that come to dominate, they amply demonstrate the ways that the tales wrestles with, among other things, issues of gender identity, character, and societal roles. Read afresh, the story limits the interpretive possibilities, but does not set in motion a fully prescribed destiny for either of the characters. Each year, the season of Lent invites Christians to be part of a story, a story whose ending they already know. Jesus' temptation in the desert inaugurates a journey that ends with the trial of the cross. What would it mean to live that story, however, without knowing the outcome? To resist the temptation for the time being of Paul's foregone conclusion, that Jesus' destiny is to undo the effects of the original disobedience and instead follow the winds of fortune without knowing where they will lead Jesus or even us. Is it possible or even desirable to experience Lent as a voyage into the unknown? Without knowing the destination, might we not get lost and even lose ourselves along the way? When we read a story for the first time, we never know how it's going to end. Even upon a second, third, or fourth reading, we notice elements we had previously overlooked, aspects that affect us how we experience the ending when we actually arrive there. Each time we manage to find our way through, because in a really well-told tale, although the journey can be different each time, the possibilities are nevertheless limited. Canadian writer Alice Munro is one who consistently achieves the delicate balance between the fatedness of a narrative with the freedom of discovery. As a reviewer of her 2004 collection of short stories observes, quote, the third thing that is so compelling about Runaway is a powerful sense of fate, chance, destiny. Monroe's story, Trespasses, plays ironically with this, opening with what turns out to be the closing scene. The ring composition enfolds the tale of Lauren, her parents Harry and Eileen, and Delphine, an employee at a small town hotel. The reader has a dim sense of where the story is going to end up, 
but less a knowledge of what's going to happen and more an unspecified mingling of fear and foreboding. What brought these four characters to this place just far enough off the road at midnight in the dead of winter? Does this bode evil for Lauren in the back seat wearing her pajamas? The ensuing narrative unfolds as a flashback that relates Harry, Eileen, and Lauren's recent arrival in the town and their first encounters with the initially unnamed woman who works at the hotel. Harry, who has taken over the town newspaper, wants to write books and shares this bit of advice with his daughter, Lauren. The thing about life, Lauren, is to live in the world with interest, to keep your eyes open and see the possibilities, see the humanity in everybody you meet, to be aware. If he had anything at all to teach her, it was that. Be aware. Eyes wide open, like the man and the woman after eating the forbidden fruit. Lauren becomes aware of the mysterious, oddly light cardboard box among her father's boxes of papers. Her interest in humanity leads her into a clandestine friendship with Delphine. The box and Delphine share a secret as Lauren begins to piece together the truth that binds them together. Her own identity and fate are thrown into doubt. She no longer knows who she is. Is, the, is she the child of Harry and Eileen? Or is she adopted? And is Delphine her biological mother? And the human remains in the box. Do they belong to Lauren, Harry and Eileen's adopted daughter? Or to Lauren, their biological one? So distressed that she becomes physically ill, Lauren finally tells Eileen and then Harry, but goes to bed fearing that the revelation will lead to one of Eileen and Harry's violent rows, fights that Lauren now suspects have to do with the buried secret that she's uncovered. Instead, however, her actions lead to resolution, at least for the adults. Delphine comes for proof about the death of the daughter she gave up for adoption. Harry wakes Lauren and explains the whole story. But one chapter is still unfinished. So tonight, as a family, says Harry, tonight, everything, while everything is all wide open, we're going to go out and do this and get rid of all this misery and blame. Delphine and Eileen and me, we want you to come with us. Is that all right with you? Standing in the snow just far enough off the road, each of the adults takes a handful of the ashes. Eileen begins the Lord's Prayer, but Harry interrupts. This is Lauren, who was our child and whom we all loved. Let's all say it together. And they all do, ending with, and we say goodbye to her and commit her to the snow. With Eileen adding hastily at the end, forgive us our sins our trespasses. Forgive us our trespasses. The ending of the story for Lauren is more ambivalent. Like the painful burrs clinging to her pajamas and then her legs and fingers, the words hers and ours stick painfully in her ears. Is she not more than someone's possession? Mortality. 
ashes, the desire to be rid of mystery, misery, and blame, prayers for forgiveness from sins and trespasses. These elements constitute the end of Monroe's story in the beginning of the Lenten story. Yet perhaps these familiar beginnings can open up an extraordinary journey, one that resists the temptation to take the usual path, one that is open to the possibility of losing oneself along the way. Be aware. Many thanks to Barbara Pitkin of Stanford University and Grace Lutheran Church for her Lenten essay, Tempting Fate. For books this week, I review Paul Collier, The Plundered Planet, Why We Must and How We Can Manage Nature for Global Prosperity. New York, Oxford University Press, 2010, 271 pages. In his previous book about the world's poorest people, called The Bottom Billion, 2007, the Oxford economist Paul Collier cut a middle path between the left, exemplified in Jeffrey Sachs' book The End of Poverty, which argues that more aid is the way to help poor nations, and the right, exemplified in William Easterly's book The White Man's Burden, which suggests that more aid is the problem, not the solution. In The Plundered Planet, Collier turns to environmental economics and ethics and continues his centrist perspective. Collier wants to reconcile global prosperity, which risks plunder at the hands of unfettered market economics, with an ethical approach to the natural world, which risks irrelevance due to a romantic view of nature. Principled environmental ethics and pragmatic economic self-interest need each other, says Collier. This is especially so because natural assets like coal in the ground and fish in the oceans represent what Collier calls a massive opportunity for the poor that easily dwarf the debate about too much or too little aid. Such is the defining challenge of our age to move beyond the greed of unethical economics and the guilt of nostalgic environmentalism. We need to see ourselves as custodians of the world's natural assets who bear a distinct responsibility to future generations and not owners. But nor can we help people in the present or in the future as well as we might if we see ourselves as mere preservationists. Collier first considers non-renewable natural assets like oil in Nigeria, diamonds in Sierra Leone, or copper in Chile, and the extent to which such environmental blessings constitute the so-called resource curse. He outlines four links in a chain to transcend their ambiguous effect. Discovery of the natural asset, extraction, expenditure of revenues, and then balancing obligations to the present and future generations. He then turns to renewable assets like fish and trees and the liabilities of assets like carbon emissions from burning coal. In his later chapters, Collier considers hunger and insists that we must move beyond three common roadblocks to helping the poor. 
Our love affair with peasant agriculture, Europe's fear of genetically modified foods, and America's subsidies for ethanol as a fuel. Call your rights for a general audience, but average readers like me will find some of his arguments rather technical. Nonetheless, this made me appreciate the genuine complexity of problems that have no easy alternatives. Some of his suggestions will never happen, like assigning, like assigning the natural assets of the oceans, which have no natural owner, to the United Nations. Collier is also unsparing about the problems of corruption, bad government, the limits of good government, and incompetence. But I question whether the citizen's power that he proposes is really, quote-unquote, unstoppable. In Collier's world, there are no simple solutions to a sustainable environmental economics. Only difficult trade-offs that aim to combine self-interest in human compassion. The author is Paul Collier. The title of the book, The Plundered Planet, from the year 2010. For film this week, we go to South Korea in a movie with a simple title, Mother, from the year 2009. Mother was South Korea's entry in the Academy Awards for Best Foreign Film. If it was a Western movie, it would be rich for Freudian analysis. But since it's Korean, that's probably a false lead. Yoo Do Jun is 27 years old, and he still lives with his single mother. She sells medicinal herbs and practices acupuncture. Do Jun's father makes no appearance whatsoever in the movie. Dujun is clearly a social misfit and maybe even mentally retarded. He sleeps in the same bed with his mother who obsesses and frets about him. Sexual taunts provoke him to prove himself a man, which in turn leads to a murder charge and time in prison. But he's an easy scapegoat for lazy law enforcement, and this puts his mother into maternal overdrive to solve the mystery of his guilt or innocence. You and I are one, she tells Du Jun when he's in prison. She goes to extreme lengths to save her son, the only object of her love, which efforts result in a double tragedy at the end of the film. Mother is in Korean with English subtitles. And finally, for the first Sunday in Lent for poetry, we've posted a poem by George Herbert. George Herbert lived from 1593 to 1633. The title of this poem is called The Cross. What is this strange and uncouth thing? to make me sigh and seek and faint and die until I had some place where I might sing and serve thee, and not only I, but all my wealth and family might combine to set thy honor up as our design. And then when after much delay, much wrestling, many a combat, this dear end so much desired is given to take away my power to serve thee, to unbend all my abilities, 
My designs confound and lay my threatenings bleeding on the ground. One of you dwelleth in my bones, another in my soul, the memory of what I would do for thee if once my groans could be allowed for harmony. I am in all a weak, disabled thing, save in the sight thereof where strength doth sting. Besides, things sort not to my will, even when my will doth study thy renown, thou turnest the edge of all things on me still, taking me up to throw me down, so that even when my hopes seem to be sped, I am to grief alive, to them as dead. To have my aim and yet to be further from it than when I bent my bow, to make my hopes my torture, in the fee of all my woes another woe, is in the midst of delicates to need, and even in paradise to be a weed. Ah, my dear father, ease my smart. These contrarieties crush me. These cross actions do wind a rope about and cut my heart. And yet, since these thy contradictions are properly a cross felt by the sun, with but four words, my words, thy will be done. George Herbert, The Cross Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for the first Sunday in Lent, March 13, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.